You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Okay, let's let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the eyewitness testimony that we will get to look at today. And uh, we thank you for preserving it, for inspiring it, um, and for bringing it into our language that we may see and understand who Jesus is and what he calls us to do and to be and how he calls us to you. Lord, we uh, come before you in this time. We ask you to speak to us. We, uh, We love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. So before World War II began to kick off, there were already beginning to be uh, signs of concern regarding Hitler's rise to power in Germany, uh, to such a point that actually Neville Chamberlain from Great Britain went to have a meeting with Hitler to try to gain an understanding of what his motivations were. And so during that meeting, Hitler uh, very much charmed Mr. Chamberlain in such a way that he came back going, you know what, Hitler is really not all that interested in taking over much land, um, and so I think he's someone we can trust. And in the end, that interaction between those two ended up having devastating effects because there was not the kind of uh, awareness of what all Hitler was doing and his, uh, his uh, vile intentions were allowed to go unchecked uh, for a little bit longer because of this misreading of the interaction between Chamberlain and Hitler. Uh, this is one of many stories that's in, um, in uh, Malcolm Gladwell's new book, Talking to Strangers, which I just recently finished. And uh, it's a fascinating thing um, as he, uh, Malcolm Gladwell just has an interesting, he's an interesting storyteller. He has an interesting take on cultural and psychological factors. And, um, and in his book, uh, the subtitle is What We Should Know About the People We Don't Know. And uh, what he does in the book is talk about how we all have a default setting that when we interact with strangers, we think we're pretty good reads of people. Uh, But the problem is, is that sometimes people don't match up with what we expect. Sometimes our our radar um, doesn't match up with who we're talking to and there can be disastrous effects. And so he walks through things like the Jerry Sandusky. Um, He talks about uh, Bernie Madoff and he just walks through all these different things. Why did uh, evil people go unchecked? And, and it, at times, why did good people sometimes get blamed for things? Um, when we don't um, read people right or our default settings are wrong, it can really have catastrophic effects. And, um, and what we have here um, in our passage over the next, actually over the next several chapters, is we have Jesus in these one-on-one interactions with strangers. So I was, I was kind of tempted actually to name this message Talking to Strangers Part 1 because he actually has this interaction with a man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is trying to get a read on Jesus, and Jesus masterfully reads Nicodemus. So Jesus is one of those people who his default settings are exactly right in that he has a way of being able to read past the exterior and see into the heart of man. And these people are interacting with Jesus, and they're trying to figure out what Jesus is. So Jesus is totally deconstructing their whole world in order that he can offer himself as true life. And that's what we have here. And we have that about five times over the next few chapters as we look at the woman at the well, the official. Uh, There's some others as well um, where Jesus is interacting with strangers and he reads their hearts and, uh, and diagnoses what their issue is and then shows how he is the solution to that. He is the one who brings life. And in the same way, these people are trying to figure out and make sense of Jesus. Um, so if you'll, if you'll turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2, verse 23, what we're coming out of is we're coming out of Jesus cleansing the temple. So he has come in and he is not happy with what he has found in God's good temple in Jerusalem. 
Um, and so he's cleared it. And he's made some strong statements about this is not a place of trade. This is not a place for people to try to get ahead or to take advantage of each other. This is a place for all nations to gather and for, um, for people to commune with God, to pray with God. This is a place for people to come and meet God. And so he cleanses the temple. And then he talks about, he's confronted on that. And he says, I destroy this temple and I will raise, um, I, it will be ra- I will raise it up in three days. They don't understand what he's talking about. Typically, Jesus is uh, not always easy to understand. But in the end, he's talking about himself. That's what we'll find. That's what we find is that he's talking about his own body, that he actually is the meeting place between God and man. He's the new temple, not some place in Jerusalem, but he himself. So coming out of that, verse 23, uh, we have a transition before we meet Nicodemus. And here's the transition. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So this is interesting in that he's just cleansed the temple, but now he's there, and it's, it's Passover feast time. So this is the most, uh, this is the most religious place uh, in the world, this is the place where God's people are. This is God's people. They're gathering on the most important week, the most important day, which is the Passover week. And so you have the most devout place, the most devout time, the most devout people. And you actually see that, that though he has just kind of upset their whole religion, they're responding favorably to him. So you would think if there's any point for Jesus to kind of hit the popularity level and really go viral, um, this would be it. But it's interesting that Jesus, although people are responding positively to him, Jesus understands that there's something deeper going on. That just an outward interest in Jesus is actually not what Jesus is looking for. And that's what he, said, that's what he does in, in, in verse 24. Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself uh, knew what was in man. So that gives us an indication that actually this positive draw to Jesus is external and superficial. He knows that in their heart of hearts, they're kind of interested in the show he can produce and they, and they kind of clap him when he performs the signs. But there's, no, there's actually nothing in them that's really desiring him for him. And Jesus has no interest in developing a big following. He has interest in, develop, in, in, in creating a people, which is a different thing. A following and a people are a different thing. So Jesus is not interested in public validation, and he's not interested in impressed fans who kind of cheer him on. So this is is strange. This is a strange situation. Um, If if Jesus would have wanted to create some sort of revolution, this would have been his time to start. But in the end, he's actually pulling back from the superficial response to him. There's something deeper that Jesus is looking for than just sort of applause or respect. Um, and, and here we have, uh, that transitions us then into chapter 3. And I think what we have here is we have a representative case. In chapter 3, we're introduced to a man who I think actually represents the best that Israel has to offer, the best that religion has to offer. Um, so again, we're coming out of he knows what's in man, He knows that this positive regard for him is not from a genuine heart to change and be reconciled to God. And here's an example. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews 
This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. All right, so if this is like the most religious place, time, and people, and they're responding relatively positively, and Jesus is still like, wait, there's something deeper going on here that I can't, um, that, I, that he's not on board with. Then you have Nicodemus come to him, and look at this man's credentials. He is an Israelite, first and foremost, so he's born into the people of God, the privileged people of God. So he's got the right heritage. Uh, also, he's a Pharisee, which means he is a top law keeper. Like this is like, this is like the all-star team of, of Jewish law keeping, right? The Pharisees, Pharisee means separated ones. They're the, they're the set apart ones. They're the ones that everyone looks to and goes, that's the standard. In fact, Jesus later says, that unless your righteousness exceeds the Pharisees, you cannot enter heaven. So that, this, is the, this is the top law-keeping class in, uh, in, among the most privileged, godly people in the world, or at least set apart by God. And then also, look, he's, his, his, he's called a ruler. He's called a ruler, um, a ruler of the people, a ruler of the Jews. So this is a man who's got the right heritage, he's got the right behavior, and he has got influence. This man has it all. This is the best that Israel has to offer. This is the best that religion could ever um, hope, hope to achieve. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and you have this interaction now where Jesus is going to confront everything that Nicodemus has ever thought or believed. Any confidence that he has ever had, Jesus is about to confront that. Um, so we have uh, Nicodemus' credentials, but then we have Nicodemus', I, I think it's flattery. He comes, he comes up and he says, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher from God. We see the signs that you're performing. We know that God is with you. And I think that, that there's a little, I think there is some intrigue, some genuine intrigue from Nicodemus that he's really trying to figure this out. But I actually think the reason that he's saying we is because I think he's representing a constituency. I think he's representing the leaders of the Jewish faith. They're seeing kind of the, the, the uh, turmoil that Jesus is starting to create for them. And I think Nicodemus is coming and he's like, okay, let me, let me kind of butter this guy up a little bit. Let me kind of acknowledge him. We acknowledge that you are a man sent from God. We've got to try to figure out what this guy's about. So I think Nicodemus is coming with kind of a dual motivation. I do think he's intrigued, but I also think he's representing, he's sent to investigate who Jesus is. And then look at Nicodemus's condition. He came to Jesus by night. Now there's a lot of debate on what exactly this means. Why does Nicodemus come at night? is uh, on one hand, uh, rabbis usually taught all day and then studied at night. They were busy guys. So the idea maybe is that this is really the only time when Jesus and Nicodemus might both have some time is after the end of the evening. That's possible. Also, some have wondered that maybe he comes at night because he doesn't want to be seen, that he really does. He really is intrigued by Jesus, but he doesn't want anybody to see this, you know, this person who's supposed to have it all together going to this no-name rabbi who just popped up out of nowhere, who doesn't have the credentials he has. That's possible as well. But what's interesting is that John, the Apostle John, when he writes, whenever he writes about night or darkness, he usually means not just, not just the evening, although that's true. Often he's, he's including that detail because he's wanting to say something about their spiritual state. So I actually think that while he did come at night, I think John's also trying to communicate that Nicodemus is still in spiritual darkness. He's coming by night to the author of light. To, he's coming 
uh, he's going to encounter the light. So I think all of those things are kind of in, involved there where John, this man is coming. And if anybody looks like they should be getting into the kingdom of God, it's Nicodemus. And little do we know, or as we'll soon find out, Nicodemus is still in the dark, so to speak. So I want to summarize what Jesus is about to tell John in one statement here. I think it'll pop up on the screen. So if I was to summarize the message that he is going to give Nicodemus, it is this. Salvation is new birth by the Holy Spirit through belief in Jesus. That's my summary of the, of the interaction, the point that Jesus is going to get across to this religious man. Now, what we're supposed to see when Jesus is interacting with these strangers is we're actually supposed to stand with that. We're supposed to identify with those strangers and then be able to see Jesus. And when he's diagnosing Nicodemus's condition, we're to see, him, see ourselves in that. John is, John is assembling this narrative of Jesus, and there's so many stories he could have included, but he's including this one because he wants you to be in Nicodemus' shoes. He wants your tendency to want to earn your status before God through your performance to be totally deconstructed along with Nicodemus. And that's exactly what happens. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says all the right things. Nicodemus has got all the credentials, and Jesus will have none of it. Look at what he says in verse 3. Almost kind of cuts him off, almost interrupts him. And look at how abrupt Jesus is in verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's pretty blunt. If you're having a conversation with somebody, and you just decide to go ahead and open with that line, the person will be a bit, they'll probably step back a bit, go, well, that's, There's not a lot of small talk here with Jesus because I think Jesus knows what Nicodemus is doing and he's like, I'm not going to play games with you, Nicodemus. I'm not going to play the religious, let's pat ourselves on the back. Let's get to the heart of the issue. And the heart of the issue is that you don't measure up. That's essentially what he's saying. Nicodemus would have been shocked to hear this for two reasons. One, Nicodemus trusts in his biological birth. He's an Israelite. Israelites get into the kingdom. They get into the kingdom of God because they're God's privileged people. Now, as long as they don't apostatize and they try to stay faithful to God's law, they're in the kingdom. You're just born automatically in, according to Nicodemus. So he's trusting in his biological birth, his heritage, his upbringing. Maybe you've heard people say, I was born a Christian. It's like, well, Nicodemus, in a sense, is going, I was born in the kingdom of heaven and I haven't done anything to disqualify myself, I think he's trusting in his original birth. And Jesus is saying, you need to be born again. You need a different kind of birth. Being born into the people of God does not get you in to the kingdom of God. And so Nicodemus would have been shocked to hear this. He has grown up his whole life believing that God's chosen people are automatically in because they're born that way. And then Nicodemus also, the second reason, Nicodemus trusts that he's living a worthy life. In a sense, Jesus is saying that your life has not been good enough. You need to be born again. That would be shocking for a man who's at the top of his game. This is, if anyone, if anyone gets into heaven, anyone gets into the kingdom, if anyone can make God happy, it would be Nicodemus and his credentials. And Jesus, right out of the gate, first words out of his mouth is, you got to be born again. It's not good enough, Nicodemus. Nicodemus has never heard that probably in his entire life, right? He's always been at the top of the class. He's always been good enough. 
It's kind of like you've seen those house flipping shows, right? Where they go to these houses, and what do they always say? They say, well, it doesn't look so great, but it has good bones, right? So that means there's something to salvage here. And what Jesus is saying is that, Nicodemus, there is nothing salvageable about your life. There is nothing salvageable. It needs to be totally leveled. You need a new life. You need to be born again. Your life does not measure up for the kingdom. This is shocking. This is a shocking statement that Jesus is making right out of the gate. And here's what Nicodemus says. Look in verse 4. How can a man be born when he is old? So Nicodemus is actually listening here, and he's going, you know what? How? Okay, my life hasn't been good enough. How do I get a do-over? You only get one shot at life. If you screw it up, it's not like you can go and like kind of rewind the clock, be born again, right? How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a, a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So he's thinking physically here, going, I don't get that, Jesus. And you really only get one life. And if, if I haven't lived good enough, how do I get a do-over? Nicodemus wonders, how do you get a second chance at life? How do you, all of a sudden, if I fell short of the standard, how do I get another shot at it? And that brings us to our next verse, or next point. Um, Salvation is new birth by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 5. Jesus answered, truly, truly. These truly, truly's are really important. We've seen, this is our second one already. In Greek, it's, uh, it's amen, amen. It means, listen up. It means pay attention. It's like when, you're, when you, you, gra- you grab your kids, you're like, look me in the eyes, right? This next sentence is going to affect the rest of your life, right? So Jesus is kind of, these truly trulys are, Nicodemus, this is the most significant sentence you have ever heard in your life. And we've got three of them in this passage. The first one was, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's as true as anything you've ever heard. The second one, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, if the first statement was shocking, this one would have been just as shocking. Nicodemus, your life doesn't meet the standard. You need to be born again. Well, how can I be born again? How do I reverse the clock and get another shot at trying to earn God's favor? And he says, you can't. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. He's just been told that his privileged status as a Jewish man is worthless. His elite level law keeping is not good enough. And Jesus says that it's completely out of his ability to change his status before God. This is getting a bit depressing. Nicodemus has devoted his whole life to this. And Jesus has just deconstructed it in two sentences and said, you need something that you can't achieve. You can't purchase you can't arrange. He says, unless one's born of water and the Spirit. So what's it mean to be born of water and the Spirit? There's been some different debates, some different interpretations. Some have said being born of water, meaning physical birth, and then later being born of Spirit, meaning your conversion, coming to faith in Jesus. I don't think that's right because it seems to talk about being born of water and Spirit as the same thing. Some have thought that born of water means baptism, and then born of the Spirit means some sort of second blessing or something like that. It's not that, I don't think. I think The key to this, now remember, Nicodemus is an Old Testament scholar. He actually probably has a lot of the Old Testament memorized. Certainly the first five books, but probably most of the entire Old Testament he has memorized. And here is what I think Jesus is saying. 
is he's saying that your Old Testament scriptures actually predict this, this water and the spirit. He's like, you know your Bible. You know what salvation is about if you'll just think about it. And, and let's go to Ezekiel chapter 36. It'll be on the screen here. So this is hundreds of years before Jesus comes on the scene. God is still unfolding his salvation plan that's going to be brought to uh, its culmination in Jesus. And look at what Ezekiel 36 says about how, about what God's going to do to create a people. He says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, born of water and the spirit. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you, I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So he's saying your need, you need a new birth that both cleanses you of your sin and makes you alive. I will, ba- I will give you a new heart. It's not just you need to add a couple more rules like you're like you're right there Nicodemus if you could just if you could just give a little more if you could just attend church a little more if you could just get this one more like sin struggle out of the way Jesus is saying no it's all a disaster and you need to be born again and this is something that the spirit does not you Isaiah 44:3 says I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground, I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and, will, and my blessing on your descendants. He goes on to say in verse, in verse 6, John 3, verse 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. So your physical qualities, your physical good works don't do anything about your spiritual condition. You need to be born spiritually. Only what is done of the spirit ultimately matters for the kingdom of God. Look at verse 7. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. So it's like, Nicodemus, you know this. You know your Old Testament. This was always the deal. You must, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it goes, comes or where it goes. So it is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So just think about your physical birth for a second. How much did you contribute to that whole operation? The place, the time, the people you were born to. Sometimes I say to my kids, hey, thanks for letting us be your parents. They're like, we, don't have, we didn't have a choice. <laughs> like, we just kind of got put here, right? That's what he's saying is that just as your physical birth you had nothing to do with, so also your spiritual birth. You can't, you can't make that happen. You can't decide that. Just like you, your physical birth was not something you had anything to do with, so your spiritual birth is something that is done entirely for you, entirely done to you, and not something you can do yourself. And Nicodemus, as a good Pharisee, wants something he can do, right? I want something I can do to make God happy. Jesus goes, nothing. (laughs) This is a tough night for Nicodemus. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Verse Verse 9. So he has just reached a point where he's like, I, oh, I'm, he's kind of at, at the end, end, end of his, he, he's got no more questions. The great scholar who could quote most of the Old Testament by memory is just at the end of going, I, how, how can this be? How can one enter the kingdom? What, what do I, 
if, if, if it's all been for naught and the only way to be brought into the kingdom is to be born of the Spirit and I can't manipulate the Spirit to do anything, then what? where does that leave me? His mind is reeling. His heritage means nothing. His law-keeping is worthless. His authority and respect are meaningless. God is not going to accept me based on anything I have or do or say or accomplish. There's nothing I can do to change my situation. And he's just left in that spot of total desperation before God. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? He's like, this is Bible 101, Nicodemus. Truly, truly, verse 11. So, so here's our next point. Salvation is new birth by the Holy Spirit through belief. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus tells Nicodemus, you teach others the Old Testament, but you miss the whole point. No one, no one has ever gained the approval of God based on ethnicity or religion or law keeping. Has never happened that someone has entered the kingdom of God because of their religious activity. Nicodemus, think about Genesis 15, 6, when God called Abraham. How did Abraham receive the favor of God? It says he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Long before the law even came, Nicodemus, it was righteousness, right standing before God, entrance into the kingdom by faith as a gift. Think about Deuteronomy 7, 7, Nicodemus. I was not, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. You were at the bottom of the list in terms of people God was impressed with, and yet he chose you as a gift because he loves. Psalm 40, verse 6, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. So Nicodemus, salvation, entrance into the kingdom of God has always been grace through faith, always has been. And now it's standing you, standing in front of you. It's never been about earning. It's always been about receiving a gift. It's news, not to-dos. It's faith, not work. So salvation comes by a message believed, something accomplished to you, for you, by God, received by faith. That's how you're born again. That's, that is how the entrance into the kingdom works. Ephesians 2.8 says, It is by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. I think the gift there is not just the salvation, but actually the faith to receive the salvation. Even the faith to receive the salvation is a gift of God, according to our Bibles. We can't even muster the faith. We have to have God give us the faith so that then he can give us the salvation that comes by faith. <laughs> That's just how desperate and broken that even Nicodemus, the religious elite, is. Nicodemus, salvation is news of a new birth by the Holy Spirit. Will you receive this news as your own? Will you believe it? That's the plea to Nicodemus. And then lastly, salvation is new birth by the Spirit through belief in Jesus. Look at verses 14 and 15. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. 
So Jesus is listing his credentials. Like, I am the heavenly one who is bringing you this news. Okay, so you should believe me because I'm telling you um, that this message that I'm telling you is from God. And then look at verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So it's not just belief in a message. That message is actually a person. You don't just believe some truths. You believe into a person, the God-man, who came and bore our sins and failures and earned a righteousness that we could not earn and now gifts it. And anyone who believes, not just in the things, that, that was what was wrong in, in chapter 2, right? Was that they believed in Jesus, they thought he was entertaining. They believed in kind of what he did, they thought what he said was interesting. But they hadn't believed in him. They hadn't believed like in him as the person. And now he's calling Nicodemus to believe in him. Jesus isn't just the messenger to be believed, he's the message itself to believe, be believed in, to be believed on. The most common word for the Christian is in Christ. We don't just believe Jesus, we believe in Jesus. And just like those people in the days of old that entered into the ark and were saved from judgment, Noah's ark, the people that entered were safe from judgment inside the ark. So also when we put our trust in Jesus, all of the wrath of God goes all around all around us and we're safe and protected in him because he absorbs the wrath of God. And he gives this amazing picture. He goes, Nicodemus, do you remember that story you learned when you were a kid from Numbers chapter 21? Do you remember when our people were in the desert, they'd been miraculously delivered by God out of slavery? God had brought them through the Red Sea. God brought them into the desert and God actually brought and just left bagels on the ground every morning so they wouldn't starve. God made water come from the rock. God led them by a pillar of fire and cloud. God dwelt in their midst. Do you remember all that? And then do you remember how God's people responded? And they responded with grumbling. Numbers 21. Nicodemus, you've known this story since you were two years old. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea, to the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. We hate the way you've provided for us, God. Just a wicked thing to say. After all he's done to deliver them, and his presence is with them, they complain. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, So there was sin, and then that sin resulted in judgment, a judgment of death among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. There's nothing they can do. They can't make the snakes go away. They can't make themselves immune to it. All they have is to go to Moses and hope that Moses will mediate for them. Will you ask God to remove his judgment from us? And give us grace that we do not deserve. And so Moses does. The Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent. So God created a provision, a way of deliverance, so that his justice could be satisfied, and yet his people could be delivered. Set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. 
What is the deliverance from God's judgment? It was simply to look at the provision that he had provided. Look at his provision and it was immediate healing, immediate deliverance. Immediately, the wrath was gone. And Jesus says, that's what I'm doing here. He's, I'm coming and I'm bringing a message that you don't measure up and you are under the wrath of God. But I have come to be the provision that all you'll have to do is look to me in faith and you'll be cleansed. You'll be healed. You'll have new birth by the Spirit if you look to me. There was sin against God then and you have sinned against God. There is the judgment of death on them and there's the judgment of death on you. There's the inability of them to make the judgment go away and you are totally unable to make God's judgment go away. There's intercession by a mediator. There's someone who will go between us and God to work out an arrangement by which we may be, cle- we may be set free and there's a deliverance provided in the form of a curse. The cursed form of the judgment was up, was lifted on a pole, just as Jesus himself, God made him who had no sin, to become sin. Jesus became that cursed thing that bore the wrath of God. We should have been the cursed thing put to death. Jesus became the cursed thing up on the pole. And anyone who looks will live. Anyone who looks to him and him alone live. And Jesus says, if I be lifted up, right, uh, like the Son of Man be lifted up. And um, it was interesting as I studied this, there's three ways that this, uh, ultimately this talks about the crucifixion, Jesus' atonement on the cross. But he's also lifted up from the grave in resurrection and he's lifted to heaven in glory. In the sense, we believe all three of those things in order to be born again. And because we've been born again. The crucifixion of Jesus, his resurrection from the dead, and the fact that he is reigning in heaven on high is the gospel. And by believing in that, we can be born again. Charles Spurgeon once was asked, why is it that every message you say, you must be born again? His response was, because you must be born again. There actually is no other way but to be born again. So as Christians, let me apply this, as Christians, stay humble so easy for us as Christians to start to see God at work in our life and begin to take pride in that as if we're better than other people. Don't shift justification to sanctification, meaning don't all of a sudden think that your performance is why God is pleased with you, right? Remember that it was a work of the Spirit to bring you to new life. As a church, let's never settle for simply being liked or admired, that people just like coming here. That's nice, but it wasn't what Jesus was interested in. We want new birth. I want new birth for everyone in here. I, I don't want just, hey, good sermons, nice music. We like it here. I want you to be born again by the Spirit. We can't engineer that with the music. We can't make that happen with cool slides. We can't put signs out and all of a sudden the new birth happens. We must pray that God brings the new birth in people's lives. Preaching and prayer, preaching and prayer, preaching and prayer are the only things God has determined to bless and bring about the new birth. As parents, let's not settle for just compliance with our kids. They're a good kid. Let's not settle for that. Let's pray for new birth. Let's not just be happy with them praying a prayer or dunking them in the water. Let's pray for new birth, that God would make them spiritually alive. Actually know him, be made alive through repentance and faith. 
Let's not settle for just having nice kids. Let's see them converted. And if you're not a Christian here today, maybe you like Nicodemus, you've stood in his shoes and you've been deconstructed of going, well, wait a minute. I have always put my confidence in the fact that I was born into a Christian family. If that's not good enough for Nicodemus, it's certainly not good enough for you. But, but I have a Bible. I sometimes read it. I, I sometimes feel even bad about my sin. I, I, I really try hard for God. You must be born again. Look to the uplifted Jesus and be saved. So what happened to Nicodemus? We'll close here with a couple of things here. Whatever happened to Nicodemus, if you would look in John chapter 7, because the story just kind of ends there. Um, we'll pick up a little bit next week, but Nicodemus doesn't get another word in, and, and it's not until John 7 that we actually see him pop up again. And I think there's a reason for that, is because I think actually it, it doesn't matter as much to John what happened to Nicodemus because he was actually talking to you, the reader, that you're supposed to stand in Nicodemus' shoes, and now there's like, well, what happened to him? And John's like, no, no, no. What will happen with you? What will you make of Jesus? Will you lay aside your religious performance and trust in him? But later in the book, we do get some glimpses. They're not definitive, but we do get some glimpses. Um, there's a, there is a, uh, an, uh, some conflict between the Pharisees and Jesus, and the Pharisees are trying to figure out what to do with him. And Nicodemus, verse 50 of chapter 7, says, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was uh, one of them, said to him, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Are you one of his followers? So Nicodemus, something about this interaction with him changed something in Nicodemus. And now he's actually advocating for Jesus. That's not definitive, but if you go to John chapter 19, we have Nicodemus pop up again. The only other two spots they pop up. And they're just sort of these interesting little nuggets that are like, what do we make of that? So after this encounter with Jesus, a few chapters later, Jesus is defending him. Then in chapter 19, um, let me find it. Verse 39, this is after Jesus has been crucified. They've taken him down from the cross. Look at verse 39. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. John just wants to keep reminding you of John 3, that that's the decisive point in Nicodemus's life. But hey, remember that guy? He just came by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the, with the spices, as is the burial custom of, of, the, of the Jews. So at the end, when everyone else is reviling Jesus, Nicodemus at his burial is willing to be identified with Jesus and actually bring an offering as part of his burial. So I actually think that this encounter caused Nicodemus to totally reevaluate his life and actually turn to Jesus in faith. We don't know that for sure because ultimately the question is, what about us? What about you? Have you been born again? Here's, uh, there was one other man of uh, Nicodemus's stature, uh, a man by the name of the Apostle Paul. And here's what he had to say. This, I think, just connects really well, and then we'll pray. We'll be done. Philippians 3, verses 4 through 9. Here's what Paul said, and I think this summarizes exactly what Nicodemus went through. 
He says, if anyone else has, has, thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Meaning, if anyone thinks they can get into heaven based on their religionness, their religiosity, he's like, I'm pretty sure I could win that game. He says, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of, of Christ. The word there is actually dung. That's manure. My good works, my religion, all of that stuff is manure compared to what I've received when I laid it all down and took Jesus. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Savior, my Lord. For his sake... I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that comes on faith. So we, we actually have to turn from our sins and our righteousness and trust only in what Jesus has done to be born again and brought into his kingdom. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for this time and this word. And as we stand in the shoes of Nicodemus, Lord, I pray that, that, um, that the words of Jesus would penetrate into our hearts. That as Nicodemus was trying to make sense of this stranger named Jesus, that Jesus was making sense of everything in Nicodemus' life. And while it was painful, I'm sure, to hear these things, what a glorious kindness to know that the way he was going was a dead end and led only to destruction. But that Jesus confronting him and redirecting him to faith in him uh, gave him life and brought him to life. And I pray, Lord, that maybe this would be the day that your spirit would move, move among us and would bring the new birth into hearts today. That we would have real confidence, not confidence in our performance or our upbringing or the fact that we consider ourselves good people, but that we would have the real confidence that comes that we have been secured a place in the kingdom of God because of what Jesus has done for us and may we cling doggedly to that and not let anything else encroach in our confidence. God, we turn from our sin and our religious efforts and put our trust totally in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.